I've been in a, a sermon series for the past four weeks called, What's the Big Deal About Easter? Everybody say that with me. What's the big deal about Easter? What's the big deal about Easter? And we, we, the first sermon, we dealt with the blood of Jesus. The second sermon, we dealt with the cross. The third sermon, we dealt with the resurrection. And guess what? I'm ending the sermon series dealing with the blood again because I think there's some more information I would like to share. So if that's all right with you, and you're anticipating part two of the blood sermon, raise your hand and say amen. All right. So I want you to open up your ears and your hearts as we listen to the Word of God, because I believe that the Word of God has the potential to change your life if you respond to it and open your heart to it, all right? And so let's pray. Father, we just come to you in Jesus' name through the power of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for your Word today. Thank you for your presence that we sense. We pray most of all, Lord, that you would open our ears and our hearts to receive from you, and God, that you would touch me, and that... uh, that, that I would only speak the words that you have me to speak. And everyone said a great big amen. I think that the blood of Jesus is such a big deal that I have decided to preach part two this morning. And before I really dive in and bring some further details about why I think the blood of Jesus is important or the sacrificial system in the Old Testament is important as it's demonstrated in the New, I really want you to open your heart, and I want, I want to just to remind you something that I think that you already know, and I think that I have clearly laid the foundational groundwork for this, and I think I was very clear about it. But before I go on to explain any further details about the blood of Jesus, I just want to quickly say this, that you will never understand the significance of the blood of Jesus. You will never understand the value of the blood of Jesus unless you first understand that there is a problem. Everybody shout, there is a problem. And what is that problem, ladies and gentlemen? It is sin. Now, you know, that is not a very popular subject to deal with, especially in 2018. But I think that the Bible is very clear in the Old Testament and New Testament that the soul that sins shall surely die. That the wages of sin is is death. The Bible says that sin, when it is finished, it bites like a serpent. Sin is like a mouthful of gravel. Sin takes you further than you want to go. It makes you stay longer than you want to stay. And it makes you pay longer, makes you pay more than you want to pay. You see, it's not a popular subject, but I feel that it's necessary in order for you to understand the value and the significance of the blood of Jesus. You first have to understand that there is a cosmic problem in the universe, and that is sin. You see, the Bible says in Genesis 2 and verse 17, and I quote, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God said to Adam and Eve, the day that you eat of this fruit will be the day you surely die. Something happened in the garden that day over thousands of years ago. The Hebrew phrase, shall surely die, shall surely die, that phrase actually means you shall surely die or you shall, you shall surely die dying. In other words, you're not going to drop dead right now, but there is going to be a process of death. In other words, the day that they ate of the fruit, they died spiritually and eventually they died uh, uh, physically. And that's what's happening in our world today. There is physical death and there, and there is also spiritual death. The day that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and rebelled against God and rebelled against His Word, they spiritually died, they eventually died physically, and as a result, ladies and gentlemen, you and I are born into sin and we are called sinners at the moment of our conception. We are sinners. Somebody say amen. And so many people, especially in this age, philosophically, they'll say this, I don't believe in that. I believe that every person who is born is born innocent and they're born good. And um, I know that's a nice theory, but let me just propose this question to you. If we are born innocent and good, why aren't there at least some people who have contained in this state and they have remained sinless? If people are born innocent and if people are born good, then I've got to ask this question, why aren't there any people in the world who has continued in the state of remaining sinless. And ladies and gentlemen, the last time I checked, there is nobody sinless. I'll say that again and maybe you'll agree with me. The last time I checked, there ain't nobody sinless. 
Nobody is sinless. We've all been born into sin and we continue to sin because it is a part of our nature. The fact that everybody is sinning has to hold some explanation. You see, the writer said, which is Paul, in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, he said this, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know what the Greek word for all is? All. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says in Romans 5 and verse 12, listen to the words of Paul, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and death has spread to all men because we've all sinned. So there is a cosmic problem. Sin not only affected us physically and spiritually, but it even affected the world or the nature. The nature. You see, uh, David even echoed these words in Psalm chapter 51 and verse number 5. He said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. He said, My very moment of conception was sinful because we are born into sin. Ladies and gentlemen, I've already said it to you, but you've got to understand, if, you've got to, if you really want to hold on and understand the significance of the power of the blood of Jesus, you've first got to understand the depth of our sin, the horribleness of our sin. We've got to understand that. Or the value and the significance of the blood of Jesus does not affect us like it should because we don't understand the, the, the significance of the sin problem. We have a sin problem, ladies and gentlemen. You know, look at the word, look at these words. Devil, evil, Lucifer, wicked, liar. Devil, evil, Lucifer, wicked, liar. The common denominator in all of those is I. D-E-V-I-L. E-V-I-L. L-U-C-I-F-E-R. W-I-C-K-E-D. L-I-A-R. What is the common denominator? It's I. And that is the problem with the human race. We got an I problem. Can I hear an amen? We got a pride problem. We have a pride problem. We gotta, we, and that's, that's the root of all sin is pride. Lucifer said, I will exalt myself to the throne of God. Lucifer was exalted in pride. Lucifer had the I problem, but Jesus switched it and said, Thy will be done. Not I, but thy. That is the problem. Listen, we have rehabilitation centers. We have counseling centers. We got AA groups. We got seven-step programs. We got rules and regulations. And we got laws. All of those are good. But what they do is they suppress sin. That's all they do is suppress it. They suppress our raging desires. They are put in motion to suppress the sin nature, even though the government doesn't realize what they're doing. But the reason we got to have laws is because people by nature are evil. And so we got to put laws into existence. Listen, let me tell you something. We will never create enough laws to control evil because evil does not obey laws. <laughs> evil does not obey laws. We can't do enough laws. How many laws do we have in America? More than we can ever count. And yet we still are depressed and sick and robbery and, and you know, on and on and on. You know, and, uh, we, we have a sin. We cannot create enough laws to control people. The scripture is clear about that. Remember what the apostle said in 1 John 3 and verse 5? He said, whoever commits law, whoever commits sin commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. That's why laws can't control sin, because by very nature, sin is lawlessness. It breaks the law. But I love this scripture. The Bible says, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. I think that scripture is worth saying again. Can I do it again, church? Say amen. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sin, for in him there is no sin. Let's go back to that scripture. In him there is no sin. He was manifested to take it away. He wasn't manifested to cover it up. 
He wasn't manifested to correct you. He was manifested to take your sin away. As far as the east is from the west, that is shouting territory right there. He takes it away. He doesn't cover it up. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't wink at it. He doesn't look the other direction. He was manifested 2,000 years ago to take our sin away. Christ, Christ became and was manifested Himself as a substitutionary sacrifice. In other words, He came and He took our place. You see, the problem is, is that we have a sin problem. We have a sin problem. Yes, we do. We don't like to hear it, but we really have a sin problem. And ladies and gentlemen, our greatest need is not for us to be delivered from some kind of pit But our greatest need is for us to be delivered from the penalty of hell. Our greatest need is not to be freed from slavery. But our greatest need is to be free from the slavery of sin. Our greatest need is not to be delivered out of prison. But our greatest need is to be made righteous before God. Our greatest need is not more material wealth and education. But our greatest need is to realize that we are poor, wretched, naked, and blind without Him. Our greatest need is not to have favor with man. But our greatest need is to have favor with God. Our greatest need is not to have your best life now. But our greatest need is to have our best hope now. Our greatest need, ladies and gentlemen, is to realize that our sin is deep, but His grace is greater than my sin. Woo! Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's our greatest need, is to realize He became that substitutionary sacrifice. He came and took our place. So there's the problem. Then there is a solution. Christ was manifested to take our sin away. He came as a human. He came to take it away because He had no sin in Him. He had no sin in Him. The Bible says in Galatians 3 and verse 13 that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law because He became a curse for us. He became the curse for you. He took your place. He is that substitutionary sacrifice. He is the substitute for the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, and I quote, For He made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus became our substitute. He became our sacrifice. He took our place. It is a beautiful exchange. He gave us beauty for our ashes. He gave us light for our darkness. He gave us life because of our death. There is a beautiful exchange that happened at the cross. Now, if this is true, then let me ask you a question this morning. If Jesus came to take away our sin, and Jesus came to free us from sin, then let's ask this question. How was the people in the Old Testament saved? How were they saved in the time of the Old Testament? Jesus died 2,000 years ago, not 6,000 years ago. So how in the world did the people of the Old Testament gain salvation and favor and grace in the sight of Almighty God? How were they redeemed in the sight of God? A common misconception is this, that the people of the Old Testament quote-unquote, were saved because they kept the law and the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. You see, but I believe that if you further look into the Bible, it tells a different story. The misconception is, is that the people of the Old Testament were somehow redeemed because they kept all of the law and they kept all of the commandments that God gave them. And as a result, they were welcomed into heaven and paradise because they kept the law and they obeyed the commandments of God. But do you know that there's over 600 some laws in the Old Testament? How is it possible for someone to keep all of that? And number two, how is it possible for you to remember everything? If you look at the Bible, the Bible says in Galatians 3 and verse 11, and I quote, 
Galatians 3 and verse 11, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God. And it's evident that the just shall live by faith. Listen to what the, listen to what the apostle is saying here. He is saying that no one is saved. No one is redeemed by keeping the law. You cannot be saved. You cannot be redeemed by keeping the law. In other words, the apostle said, it really is the just shall live by faith. It's not a, it's not a issue of you keeping all the law. It's the issue of you having faith in God Almighty. You see, Habakkuk, which is an Old Testament prophet, said it like this, and I quote, uh, Habakkuk 2 and verse 4, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. Even the prophet in the Old Testament said, The just, you are redeemed, you are justified because you have faith in God. Look at what the apostle said in Romans 4 verse 3. Romans verse 4 3, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him righteousness. Whew. Can I just shout right here? Do you all know the significance of this scripture? Abraham was before the law ever existed. Before God ever gave the law to Moses, Abraham pre-existed Moses. Abraham pre-existed the law. Abraham pre-existed the sacrificial system of the blood offerings. Abraham pre-existed all of that. And the scripture indicates to us that Abraham was made righteous before God because he believed in God. I don't know about you, but I think that the scripture is clear that you are not redeemed. You are not redeemed. You're not saved by keeping the law. But even in the Old Testament, God was a gracious God. God was a merciful God. Whew. He said, Abraham believed me and it was accounted. It was imputed. It was put upon him. Righteousness. The Bible says in Romans 4 verse 6, how many is with the preacher this morning? I said, how many is with me this morning? Romans, Romans chapter 4, verse 6. Look at what the apostle said. Just as David also described. Who is David? The king of David in the Old Testament. Who performed and had sacrifices performed. Who tried his very best to keep the law. And David is saying here, or the apostle is quoting David in Romans 4, verse 6. Just as David also describes the blessedness of a man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. And blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. You know what David said? David said, hallelujah. David said there's something more to be found about God. God is just not a judge up there wanting you to keep laws. God is not just a God up there that wants sacrifice. God is a God up there that's want your heart to believe in Him. Romans chapter 4 verse 23. Look at what the apostle said. And I quote, Now it was written, for the sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. Who? It's talking about Abraham. It was written not only for Abraham. Not only was the message for Abraham, but it was also for us. It should be, it shall be imputed to us who believe in Him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, and who delivered us up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Though the apostle is saying, it was written so that you will know that from the very beginning, it was more than sacrifices. It was more than a blood offering. It was more than just keeping the law. God was a gracious God from the very beginning. Whew. David, 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 David in the Old Testament, Old Testament. David in the Old Testament said it like this. Psalm 51 verse 16. He said, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would 
You don't delight in burnt offerings. For the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. These, oh God, you would never despise. Woo! Galatians 3 and verse 8. Galatians 3 and verse 8. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Hold on, listen to this scripture. Preach the gospel to who? Who? You mean the gospel was preached to Abraham before Jesus? The gospel was preached to Abraham saying, If in you all the nations shall be blessed, so then those who are of faith are blessed because of believing Abraham. God was saying, listen, it's more than about sacrifices. He actually started preaching the gospel. God preached the gospel to Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to impute to you righteousness because of your faith in me. And ladies and gentlemen, that's the gospel. The gospel is that your church attendance cannot save you. The gospel states that your tithing record cannot save you. The gospel states that you cannot do enough good works to redeem yourself from the penalty of hell. But the gospel states that whosoever shall believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he shall be saved. At that moment you believe. At the moment you confess. God takes away your sin and puts righteousness upon you. Hallelujah. Job. Job said in Job 19.25, Job, which was probably the first book ever written in the Bible, he made a declaration and said, I know that my Redeemer lives. His faith was strong. I'm afflicted in my body. My wife wants me to curse God and die. But he says in all of this, my faith is strong and I know that my Redeemer lives. You see, pastor, it doesn't make sense. I can go on and on and on. Genesis chapter 6 verse 8. Genesis 6 verse 8. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's not because he did sacrifices. It's not because he kept all of the law. He was before the law. But God looked down on Noah's heart. Everybody else was running here and there and committing sin and immorality. But there was a man who stood strong in a society of immorality. And God said, I found my man. I found a man who believes me and trusts me with all of his heart. I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, that the Bible is more than just keeping a record of laws. The Old Testament is more than doing a sacrificial system to try to please an angry God. Isn't that what we do in Christianity? We try to preach a God who is so angry with us that we try to appease Him with our giving and our worship. God's wrath was poured out upon His Son, Jesus Christ. And His wrath is not poured out upon you. You are saved from the wrath to come because that cross behind me symbolizes the wrath of God. So, am I getting too excited up in here? Somebody bought me a hanky that had the word pastor on. I left it at my house. I think I need to bring it next week. What do you all think? So, the way of salvation... In the Old Testament, was the same as New Testament. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how they were saved in the Old Testament. Even though they didn't know anything about Christ, they put their faith in God. They put their faith and trust in God alone. And because of that, God redeemed them and justified them. Now, if that's true, Pastor, if the Old Testament people were saved because they believed God, and not necessarily because of all the sacrifices, then what was the point of the sacrifices? Why was there so much bloody ceremonies of the Old Testament? 
Well, it's clear that God was showing a picture to His people. Galatians 3 verse 24 says, Therefore the law was our tutor. Before faith came, we were kept under the guardian of a tutor that we might be justified by faith. The law was a taskmaster. It was a tutor. It was to show us something that was coming. The Bible says in Hebrews 10 and verse 1, the Bible says that all of the law was a shadow. Hebrews 10 verse 1, it was a shadow of good things to come. It was a shadow. The law was a shadow. It was telling us of things to come. The Bible says in Colossians 2 verse 17, Colossians 2 verse 17, that which is a shadow of things to come. You see, the law was a shadow pointing to the true sacrifice. It was pointing to what Jesus would really do on Calvary. And you know what God was trying to do? God instituted the sacrificial system because He wanted to let them know how serious their sin really is. He wanted them to know that because you sinned, somebody's life had to be given up. Your sin is a serious issue in my eyes. And in order for them to get the picture, in order for them to understand what God was trying to do, God was developing a type and a shadow and they had to participate in it because it reminded them that their sin was deep and offensive to God. So every time that priest would sacrifice that animal and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, the people were reminded that we are sinful and an animal is taking our place. They understood that it covered their sin. It didn't take it away. It was a temporary fix. The law was never intended to save anyone. The law made us aware of how sinful we really were. The law pointed to the perfect sacrifice. And God used the sacrifice of the Old Testament as a temporary fix to hold them off until a permanent sacrifice would come. And when Jesus came, He fulfilled all of the law. He fulfilled the sacrificial system. And He took our place, just like the lamb in the Old Testament took the place of the people of God and the priest would slit its neck and take its blood and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and God would forgive the sins of the people. The people understood. The priesthood understood we are sinful and this animal is taking our place. Jesus came and became the Lamb of God. That's why John said, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus became the Lamb of God and He was crucified upon an altar called Calvary. And His blood began to drip down off of the altar of Calvary. And the Bible says in Hebrews 9 that the eternal Spirit caught the blood and took the blood to the heavenly tabernacle. And when Jesus, after He left paradise, He went to heaven and the Holy Spirit gave Him the blood and Jesus took His own blood and walked into the heavenly tabernacle and sprinkled his blood upon the mercy seat of heaven because the things that happened there was a type and shadow of things that happened on the earth. Hallelujah! I'm talking about the blood. Hebrews 10 and verse number 9. Hebrews 10 verse number 9 For it is not possible. Hebrews 10 verse 9 It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away your sin. It was never, never, ever instituted to take away your sin. The sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed to Calvary. It was pointing to a perfect sacrifice that was to come. It was showing the people you're sinful and you can't help yourself, but somebody is going to come and take your place. And the priests don't have to stand year after year, day after day, offering sacrifices to God. But the Scripture records that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. 
And Jesus went to the Father and sat down at the right hand of the Father. You see, the earthly priest could never sit down. Why could he not sit down? He couldn't sit down because he was always performing a sacrifice. But Jesus performed the greatest sacrifice of all, took his blood to heaven and sat down because there doesn't need to be any more sacrifices anymore. He is the mediator between God and man. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He he is the scapegoat of the Old Testament. He took our sin as far as the east is from the west. Somebody help this preacher preach this morning as I give a Pentecostal fit knowing that he redeemed us from the curse of the law. Hallelujah. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. It's no wonder, Pastor David, that he is a prophet like to Moses. They didn't see it. But Jesus was a type of Moses. He was pictured in the Old Testament as a priest like unto Aaron and Melchizedek. He was a champion like unto Joshua. He was an offering that was laid down upon Mount Moriah as Abraham took his knife and was going to slay his son. Jesus became this offering on Mount Moriah. He is a king like unto David. He is a wise counselor like unto Solomon. He is the beloved, rejected, exalted son of Joseph. He is my all in all. He is the ark of the covenant. He is the serpent lifted on high. He is the mercy seat. He is the water from the rock. He is the manna from heaven. He is the brazen serpent lifted on high. He is the Passover lamb. He is the scapegoat. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the rose of Sharon. He is altogether lovely. He is the sacrifice of the ages. Hallelujah. Oh, hallelujah. Well, somebody stand to your feet and give him praise that he is our substitute this morning. Hallelujah. I said hallelujah. I said hallelujah. He is, he is, he is our substitute. Woo. Hallelujah. Don't you let any slick willy come to you and tell you and remind you of your past and tell you and beat you down and tell you you can't be used of God and God don't love you and you're this and you're that. Listen, He is our sacrifice. He is the substitutionary sacrifice. He took your guilt that you don't have to live with it. He took your shame that you don't have to live with it. He took your past that you don't have to live with it. Don't let me ever hear you say, I'm no good. Blaspheming against the blood of Jesus. You were so good He died for you. And if He thinks you're good enough, then don't let anybody else tell you you're not good enough. You are equal to the value of the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. Whew. Now they told me in seminary, in Bible college, that if you preach happy, make sure you don't speak in tongues because you would offend people. That's what they told me. Now, every once in a while, I just get a little Holy Ghost up on me. And sometimes... <laughs> People are like, I, I don't understand that speaking of tongues business is weird. Well, it's a language. I go up here to the Mexican place, I don't understand the thing that they're saying. I'm like, I want taco cheese. I want cheese. And they're like, what? Don't freak out by speaking in tongues. It's just a language to God. That's all it is. Genesis 3.21 In closing, listen to me very carefully. Genesis 3.21 God institutes sacrifices in the Old Testament because it was a picture of what God wanted to do. It was a picture to let them know how deep and awful their sin was and somebody had to take the price for it. Somebody had to pay for it. The sacrifices of the Old Testament did not remove their sin. It just temporarily covered it up until Jesus came. It was a picture. Genesis 3.21 When Adam and Eve sinned, you know what God did? 
He took the tunics of animals and clothed them. That was the first example of some sort of killing of an animal. Could it be that in the very pages of the early ancient Scriptures, God was giving us a picture. You rebelled against Me. You're naked. You're running from Me. You're disobedient. But I'm going to cover you with a sacrifice. I'm going to put something over your nakedness. And isn't that what the blood does? The blood covers our nakedness. Hallelujah. Genesis 4 and verse 4, you find that Cain and Abel understood it. Genesis 4 verse 4, they understood it. They, Abel brought, brought the firstborn of his flock of the fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. You see it very early in the Bible. People are bringing offerings to God. They're bringing sacrifices to God. Verse 4, the Bible says, that not only did Abel bring his sacrifice, but the next verse says in verse number 4, that, but, that he did not respect Cain and his offering. Cain became very angry because God accepted his brother's offering and not his. What's the point? The point is, is early in the Bible, there was this idea that I have done wrong. and There must be a sacrifice given in my place. Genesis 8 verse 20. Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, you, you, see the same, you see the same thing. Genesis 8, verse 20, that Noah built an altar to the Lord and he took every clean animal and every clean bird. This is before the law. This was before God instituted the law. Uh, Noah understood that God is holy and I'm sinful and i got to give something to Him. Leviticus 16, verse 30, God institutes the Sacrificial system. Leviticus 16 verse 30. God institutes this sacrificial system. And you see in Leviticus 16 verse 30, you see that God says, For on that day the priest shall make atonement. He shall cover your sin to cleanse you that you may be clean from all your sin before the Lord. God says, I want you to do these sacrifices because it's pointing to the ultimate sacrifice, but this is temporarily going to fix the problem until the true sacrifice comes. Now, why is this important? Because, don't lose me, all throughout the Old Testament, there's laws, there's sacrifices. It was pointing to Jesus. It was pointing to the ultimate sacrifice. The sacrifices and laws nobody could ever keep. But it made them realize how sinful they really were and they longed for something permanent. Now, in this dispensation, we are looking this way. We're looking this way. The Old Testament's here. Laws and sacrifices. Christ died here, and we're here. And we're looking this way. We see it all now. And that's why the Apostle Paul said, for as oft as you eat of this, you drink of this, you proclaim His death. Hold on, did you just get what I just said? In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, it was sacrifices and laws. And what was it doing? It was pointing to who? Who was it pointing to? The laws and sacrifices were pointing to who? Jesus dies, and now we're part of the church, and we take bread and juice and eat and drink of it, and we remember, and it points to where? See? Old Testament, sacrifices and laws pointed to Calvary. Now we're in this dispensation. We eat bread and juice because it's a form of Passover in the Old Testament. So we eat of it and drink of it and it still points to what? What's the point? Jesus never said, remember my resurrection. Jesus said, remember my death. Now, is the resurrection important? Of course, it's fundamental to our faith. But Jesus said, make sure you remember my death. So, you have two groups of people. Old Testament, their sacrifices, the priest 
lifting up the animal, slitting its throat, take the blood, sprinkle it on the mercy seat. It was a type and shadow of something that was coming. It reminded them of something that was coming. It reminded them of how serious their sin was. Jesus dies on the cross and fulfills all of the commandments and sacrificial systems. And now we stand in this dispensation and we remember what He did. And we remember that we don't have something to look forward to. We remember it's already done and we stand in His sight remembering that Christ redeemed us past, present, and future. Do you realize that after the rapture happens and we go to heaven, there is a seven-year tribulation. Now, most people believe that, and we put the Bible in a system to help us understand, but the Bible is not a systematic theology. So some of these prophet, prophecy preachers, might, some of them might be wrong, just like all of them were wrong in 2000, and they were selling their books that 2000, the year 2000 was Y2K, so you better get it. And people were, store, uh, people were getting their beanie weenies and putting in the closet because year 2000, the world was coming in. I like to tell all these TV preachers that just milk the people of God in the year 2000, y'all need to refund us. You shouldn't be given to them. If you're given to a TV preacher more than you're given to the local church, something, no, I'm just going to. When you get sick, maybe the TV preacher can come and pray for you at your bedside. Can, can I just say that again? Did that hurt? I mean, did that hurt? Maybe when you get sick, you can call the TV preacher and you can let him do your funeral and do all that stuff. Come on. Do I care that people give to a TV preacher? No. Just make sure you take care locally before you do globally. Huh? <laughs> After... After this age is over. Now get this. After this age is over, the next final age, don't lose me, is called the new millennium or the kingdom of God. So after this age is over and the tribulation is over and the Antichrist is revealed and the 144,000 preachers around the world, etc., etc., and the battle of Armageddon happens, all of that comes to an end. There is what we call the new millennium or the kingdom of God. Now what happens? In the kingdom of God or the new millennium, Jesus Christ sits on the throne of David in Jerusalem and He rules and reigns in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital of the world. He sits on the throne and you and I, according to Romans, uh, Revelation 1.5, are kings and priests unto God so we serve in the new millennium. And for a thousand years, people are given in marriage and people are born. Life goes on and we serve Him in the new millennium. In the new millennium, don't lose me, God, this is the new millennium, okay? This is the new millennium. We are here. We take communion to point us to the, the cross. Jesus died on the cross and the Old Testament is pointing to the cross. So at the new millennium, God institutes sacrificial systems again. A temple is rebuilt. And a priesthood is developed. And they start sacrificing again. It's almost as if it's Old Testament again. Oh. What is God trying to do? He's trying to bring us back to where He started. The first Adam ate of the fruit and died. The last Adam, Christ, He took our sin and because of that we'll sit at the table and eat with Him. There was a garden of Gethsemane, or excuse me, a garden of Eden that man failed and at the end, there's going to be another garden. God's trying to get us back. Now, the question we've got to ask 
is why in the new millennium, the new kingdom, is there going to be sacrificial systems again? Blood offerings. Because Jesus already died, didn't he? Jesus already shed his blood on Calvary. I firmly believe the reason that it's instituted again was, the Scripture teaches, that it's a perpetual ordinance. A perpetual ordinance? Isn't that what communion's called? Bread and juice? It's an ordinance for us to keep doing to remember what he did? In the new millennium, the priest will do sacrifices as a perpetual ordinance, and the sacrifice does not forgive sins. But the sacrifice and the blood sacrifices will be a picture to show that generation that someone had already come thousands of years ago and died on a cross for their sin. Just like we take communion as a picture of the sacrifice. In the new millennium, they reinstitute sacrificial systems as a picture to point to Calvary. So what are you saying, preacher? Now I'm about to shout. Are you ready? I'm saying this. The new millennium, the sacrifices of the new millennium is pointing to what Jesus did in Calvary. In this dispensation, the church age, we do communion and it's pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus. The Old Testament practices of rituals and sacrifices is pointing to Calvary. What are you saying? In every dispensation that humans have lived, God instituted a picture to demonstrate to them that your sin is deep, but my love is greater than anything you could ever imagine. He showed us a picture. Ezekiel 43, verse 18. Ezekiel 43, verse 18. He shows us a picture in the new millennium. It's a picture of what Christ has already done. Ezekiel 43, verse 18. This is a description of the temple in the new kingdom of God. The prophet said, Son of man, God said, Son of man, what is these ordinances for the altar on the day it was made for sacrificing burnt offerings and sprinkling the blood on it? The prophet is confused. The prophet doesn't know what to think here, but God is saying, I want, to do, I want you to do this. I want you to make the altar again. I want you to make the tabernacle again. In the new millennium? Ezekiel 46 verse 14. Ezekiel 46 verse 14. Ezekiel 46, verse 14, God says that this, this is going, you shall prepare a grain offering. I want you to do these offerings again. Morning on the sixth day. And he says this offering is going to be a perpetual ordinance. It's, it's never going to cease. It's always going to go on and on. Zechariah 4, verse 16. Now you've got to read the whole chapter to see the description of the temple in the new millennium, and the sacrifices instituted. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 16. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 16. He gives a description of the new millennium, and he says, he says that people from around the world would travel to Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Because it is the capital of the city of God. Ezekiel 40, excuse me, Zechariah 4, verse 16, he says that many will come and they'll travel to Jerusalem. They'll take their hands and go one another up the mountain of the Lord. It's going to be a glorious description of what God is going to do in the new millennium as believers take each other's hand and they approach Mount Moriah, Zion of the Lord. As the priests continue to do these sacrifices, the gospel is once again preached. The greatest sacrifice ever known to man happened in Jesus. Leviticus 23.31, and I'm going to close with the Scripture. Leviticus 23.31. I've already said I'm going to close twice, but preachers get three times. Leviticus 23, verse 31. Look at this Scripture. Leviticus 23. In verse 31, 
He says that your sacrifices is going to be a statue forever. Forever. That means it's never going to be done away with. You mean to tell me sacrificial systems will never be done away with? No. Because it's going to be a perpetual ordinance to God as a picture of what God did at Calvary. It's going to go on and on and on from generation to generation to tell the story that your sin was great before the eyes of God, but His love was greater. Ladies and gentlemen, as I close today, I want to remind you that the love of God is the picture of the Bible. The love of God. People for years have tried to figure out the love of God and yet they come to the end of themselves and they can't figure it out. How do you describe irresistible, passionate love of God who leaves the 99 and runs after the one? How do you describe the love of God where it still runs after you when you're running away from Him? There are no words to describe the love of God. Mathematicians. See, they've tried to describe the love of God. They can't figure it out. History has tried to define the love of God. Geography have tried to locate the depth of His love. Architects, they've tried to measure the height of His love. Electricians have tried to improve the light of His love. Enemies have tried to destroy His love. Voters have tried to vote out His love. Water has tried to drown out His love. Fire has tried to burn out His love. Snow has tried to cover up His love. Storms have tried to blow His love away. And 2,000 years ago, death tried to kill His love. But ladies and gentlemen, He is alive and well with healing in His wings. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Easter. Let's stand and rejoice that He has crushed the head of the serpent and given us victory. Hallelujah! Will somebody give God praise today for His love? Oh, hallelujah! I'm telling you the love of God can change your life. Hallelujah. I'm not talking about some kind of experience where we roam around quoting the Scriptures. I'm talking about a living experience that gets in your heart and shoots from the top of your head down the soles of your feet. I'm talking about an experience that changes your life forever. I'm so tired of dead orthodoxy. Roaming about, quoting dead Scripture. No life. This is a living thing. Living religion. Religion of the heart. He penetrates. He takes the heart of stone out. Gives you a heart of flesh. Hallelujah.